Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. We've just finished a wonderful series looking at the challenges posed by science to faith, all kinds of aspects, and we will return to the question of science and religion in a few months' time. But for now, we're going back to the world of politics and the political challenges to faith, starting with the fascinating and unique relationship between faith and politics in Hungary, represented best of all by President Viktor Orban. I've invited Alexander Faludi on the podcast. Alex has a colourful history and you can find a Wikipedia page all about him and his exploits. But in this episode, we're concerned with his current role as a freelance journalist reporting on the religious dimension of Hungarian politics. He has some important insights which overturn the common perception of Viktor Orban as using religion to achieve political ends for Hungary. Let's hear what he has to say. Great. You ready to talk a bit about Hungary and Viktor Orban and all that fancy Absolutely. stuff? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so first of all, I guess you you quit your role as an Anglican priest in Newcastle and moved to Budapest for, for really quite personal reasons of things that you felt you needed to, to do and things that needed to be said and you were the right person to say them. So could you t- tell us a little bit about that journey? Yes, certainly. So I'm, I'm half Hungarian, as my surname would indicate, and I grew up in, in Britain. Uh, my father was born in Budapest, but came to England as a small child, uh, as a refugee during the Cold War. Um, and for the last 15 years, uh, my own connection with Hungary has been developing and, and growing stronger. Uh, I was visiting two or three times a year uh, up till sort of 2017, 18. And partly there was a personal thing, which is that every time I got on a plane to go back to Britain, I didn't think I was going, feel I was going home, but home yeah, was there. Yeah, very interesting. Um, uh, but also that in the last few years, I did actually feel more and more angry about some of the things I saw going on in terms of the destruction of the rule of law and the squeeze on press freedom and, and so on. And yeah, so we'll talk a lot more about that later. A, a bit, a bit later. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But, the, um, but there seemed to be a missing dimension to a lot of Western coverage of the situation in Hungary, which was the place of the Hungarian churches in Orban's defence of Christian Europe uh, and their yeah. relationship to to that discourse. And um, it was a gap I felt I could usefully fill. And that's basically because you, you're trained in theology and you're you've got Hungarian roots. Hungarian roots so. and very live church connections in, in all of the three main denominations, the Catholic, Lutheran and Reformed. Sorry, well, in, in, in size order, Catholic, Reformed and Lutheran. Yeah, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. So there's the Catholic Church is the biggest church in Hungary. It is, though the Reformed Church has always punched above its weight, politically speaking. Okay. Um, and it's it's not an accident that Viktor Orban and most of the leaders of Fidesz are, are from historically reformed families, um, even if practice it, not practising latterly, but certainly from that cultural milieu. Yeah, okay. And so what, what are the sort of percentages that we're looking at? Right, so we're awaiting a, a, a new census this, um, this month. Uh, sorry, not this month, this, this year. Historically... Uh, the, the, the percentages were roughly something like two-thirds Roman Catholic, 25% Lutheran, 
uh, sorry, 25% Reformed and, and about 3% Lutheran, and then a hodgepodge okay. of others making up um, the rest. Um, obviously, that's, that's sort of shifted enormously uh, uh, since 1990 with a, an advance of secularization. But in terms of people's family backgrounds, that would, that would still be right. roughly correct. Okay. And so one of the things that you're, you're really trying to help English-speaking audience understand better is basically we tend to be of the opinion that the Hungarian government and Viktor Orban and, and his party, which is called Fidesz, right? F-I-D-E-S-Z. Z, yeah. Yes. Um, that they, they're using religion as a tool to gain political power. Um, but your, your goal is to try and show how actually... They are deeply religious themselves. Religion isn't just a tool for them. Religion is actually part of their primary motivation for what they do. I, I think um, I, the, 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 uh, the situation is, um, is is very complicated, and I wouldn't say that everybody in Fidesz is is, is strongly religious. Okay. Um, but um, it is much more of a significant element in the makeup of, of Viktor Orban and of other leading figures in, in Fidesz than people often realise. And the engagement that Fidesz has with religion goes back a long way. It's not something, it's something that perhaps only dawned on the Western public consciousness circa 2015 in relation to the migration straight refugee crisis, but it had been developing really since as early as 1992. Interesting. So, what 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 happened in 1992 that kicked this off? Yeah. So, uh, in 92, um, Orban started to think about moving Fidesz's political alignment from sort of cent- um, left liberal towards the right. Okay. Uh, um, uh, and that was partly to do with the collapse of the MDF government. Well, it, it, it staggered to the end of its term, but it's clearly its its popularity was collapsing and there was going to be a conservative space on the spectrum that he could reach into. I see. So the MDF government was the existing majority conservative party. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it, okay. led, it led a coalition. But yeah, it was the moderate conservative party. With, I see. With quite strong church connections. Uh, and he also had, a in the summer of 1992, an important conversation with the Archbishop of Eger, uh, who was also president of the bishops' conference at that point? Who, after which, um, he, he, I think, something changed in terms of his understanding of the importance of of religion in in Hungarian history and and popular psychology. Uh, I think there might have been a significant degree of opportunism in Orbán's early embrace of religion, okay. but I don't think that it necessarily. I don't think it stayed as opportunistic. I think what may have been convenience developed into something more. Um, more significant um, and, uh, in its own way, more genuine. Um, that's not to say that it's uh, um, that it's not problematic, but it's a mistake to dismiss it as as superficial. I think a particular turning point was probably two thousand and two. Okay, what happened then? Two thousand two, he lost the um, the election, uh, much to his surprise, and um, kind of disappeared from public life. For a for a number of months, um, and and took it really very badly, and there is a school of thought, um, a sort of a popular uh, perception that during that time, part of his process of, of of emotional reconstruction was the intervention of Zoltan Balog, who is uh, today the presiding bishop of the Hungarian Reformed Church, and okay. who uh, served as Orbán's minister of human resources for. Uh, six years. Oh, so he's actually been in both politics and in absolutely, the church full time. Absolutely, and and um, 
Paul Landvai, uh, Orban's biographer, who is himself very secular, um, has said that Zoltan Bolog has probably influenced Viktor Orban more than any other person except Orban's wife, Anna Kulevi. So this fellow is really important for us to uh, understand if we want to understand Viktor Orban's own religious... Absolutely. And it was Bolog who, even before 2002, which I'll come back to, in in the 90s um, sort of nurtured Orban's engagement with faith, who prepared him for confirmation as an adult in 1996. Okay. um, Conducted a second church marriage for him and and Anniko Leve. Um, They had an earlier one conducted by the independent Methodist pastor, uh, uh, Gabor Ivanyi, but who was on sort of the left, side of the spectrum and Bolog sort of um, introduced Orban to a range of church leaders starting in 92, um, fostered his own engagement with religion and and adult confirmation and then in 2002 when Orban was in this sort of period of withdrawal there is a, an understanding that he helped him sort of come out of the out of the fog um, mm. um, by nurturing in him a strong sense of personal vocation saying you know kind of you mustn't give up Victor because you have this calling to fulfill. Gosh yeah okay so that's a very that's a very religious way of thinking about things that you're under some sort of divine mission and Hungary needs you to take up your political roles and that kind of thing yeah very interesting okay and you can see in terms of sort of Fidesz's public engagement with religion because Hungary is is a mainly historically Catholic country the kind of public spectacle often draws on the kind of visual language of, of, of political Catholicism. And you can see that, for instance, in the way the iconography of, of St. Stephen, the, the founder of the Hungarian state, has been bigged up in, in recent years. But in terms of the language that's used, it often connects much more strongly back into the Hungarian reformed tradition. Yeah, well, that would make sense if, if Viktor Orban is himself reformed, not Catholic, and... Uh, and many of the Fidesz party is. Yes. In fact, um, I understand the Fidesz party is itself actually officially reformed, isn't it? And it's just joined itself with a smaller... Well, so I don't think it officially says reformed um, in, in its documents, but there is a perception of it as, uh, as, as reformed. And it has, for that reason, it has this um, relationship with the KDNP, the Christian Democratic People's Party, okay. which is a mainly Catholic party, right. and which it sort of absorbed. Um, but it's important for its branding that it is Fidesz KDNP, because um, that gives it a bridge to a significant part of the Catholic electorate. I see. So then reformed people can say, oh, I'm voting for Fidesz because they're largely reformed. But Catholics can say, oh, I'm voting for the KDNP, KDNP, yeah. which is Catholic, but actually, to a large extent, they're both yeah, Basically I mean, the KDNP is, is less yeah. distinguishable from Fidesz than, than the cooperative party is from Labour. And, and when speaking of the government, Orban says, uh, you know, we are not a coalition. Um, oh, oh, OK. So it's, it's a satellite party rather than a coalition partner. Really. Yeah, because Fidesz is actually just much more powerful. OK. So all of this... But basically, the picture that you're painting is a picture of politics in Hungary, which is actually motivated by religious uh well values and interests religious uh, values and interests rather than just using religion as a tool to garner political power well i think there is um uh, that there is opportunism involved but it's a mistake yeah. to say that it's all opportunism which yeah, is the yeah. um uh, has been the, the sort of the traditional western commentary line and hungary so 
Hungary is not Poland in terms of religiosity. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, what does that mean? What, what do people think of when they think of Poland? Well, Poland, you know, sort of uh, consistently comes out on the Pew Research indexes as you know the first or the second most religious country in the in in, in Europe um, in terms of right. both, uh, affiliation, church attendance, um, and people's personal um, sense of, of of belonging and and in practices of prayer and so on. I mean, there yeah. are complex metrics involved, but Poland is near that is at the top or near the top. So when we think of Poland, we're thinking of one of the most religious countries in Europe. Yes, there, okay, exactly. Yeah. So you've got Poland at one of the spectrum, and you, and you have places and and in terms of advanced secularity or relatively mm. advanced secularity, the other you have places like the United Kingdom, the Netherlands especially. Yes. Um, and maybe and Scandinavian countries yeah. as well, yeah. Um, but Hungary consistently scores in the middle okay. um, of, of the Pew Research measures. And so it is um, perhaps not as... Religion is not perhaps quite as significant as it, you might gather from Viktor Orban's speeches, but it's certainly a lot okay. more significant in Hungarian life than uh, Western commentators often realise based purely on census data. Yeah, okay. So so it's definitely, it's not just that he's appealing to religious people, but he's also just, because he's religious, religious people are more likely to trust him. And I, I, That's certainly part of it, yeah. Yeah. So I want to now dig into some of the reasons that this information could be a little bit challenging to us, especially if we are Christian. I think what we like to think is that the more Christian a person is, the more they're going to be open and compassionate and welcoming and not not racist for example you know <laughs> yeah um and so some of the things that victor orban says about restricting immigration for example are going to be troubling to people who think that the truly christian way to deal with refugees and immigrants is to welcome them victor orban doesn't seem to think that christianity involves that so what do we what do we do with that information? What what we have to remember is that genuine and nice are not yeah. always exactly coterminous um, <laughs> so concepts. Genuinely, genuinely Christian, but not necessarily yeah. Um, nice. in, at least in terms of articulating or describing yeah. Christian history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, one of the troubling things uh, when you look back historically at Hungary, and particularly the, the language of Christian Hungary in the period up to 1944, mm. as, as described very well in, in Paul Hannebrink's book, uh, In Defence of Christian Hungary, is that it was incredibly nationalistic and tended towards um, a racialising discourse. And that's actually part of the Hungarian Christian tradition in different ways in the Reformed and the Catholic spheres, but but it's definitely there. And Orban has, through Balog or through others, sort of connected to that. And we have to remember that how we perceive the political dimension of Christianity in the modern, straight postmodern world, is is a very historically contingent development, um, yeah. uh, and it is the result partly of the Bartian and uh, Mauritian, uh, you know, Jacques Maritain's um, oh. uh, turns. Uh, in, oh, can in, you in, unpack those a little bit? Yeah, for... well, you know, with 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 Carbart in in um, and his influence in in the Protestant world in the 
post-war uh, period, you get a profound critique of the church of, of the Protestant church's relationship with nationalism. Right. Um, so Karl Barth represents somebody who's really trying to separate true Christianity from yeah. political power games and nationalistic agenda. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know you have the the, dia- you know, the dialectic confrontation between the gospel and culture. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And on the other you side, you have in the Catholic tradition Maritain's. Uh, so Jacques Maritain was a, a very famous public Catholic intellectual from the 20th century. Indeed. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and you have his critique of, of what until then had been the Catholic Church's embrace, really, of authoritarian modes of government. Right, so he was, also, he was also trying to pull the Catholic Church away from overly closely identifying itself with certain cultures and nations. Not yeah. so much cultures and nations, though there was a bit of that, but more authoritarian governance. So, right. so there was a great suspicion in Catholic political thought about... Um, modern liberal democracy until until the sort of 1940s. Yes, I remember learning about that. The Catholics were very suspicious of democracy, I guess, because the Catholic Church itself doesn't really work in a democratic mode. And so, and also because the Catholic Church has deep historic roots in like medieval Europe where there weren't democracies back then. Democracy was kind of this new thing that you're a little bit suspicious of. And I remember learning that Jacques Maritain did a lot to persuade Catholics that at least for the secular political arena, never mind the Catholic Church itself, but for the secular political arena, democracy was actually a good thing and we should embrace it. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, you know, and, and that had an impact on the stance of the of the Vatican and and, yeah. and on kind of official articulations of, of uh, Catholic political thought, and by the late 1940s, you get sort of things coming out of the Vatican saying that you know, democracy has attained a respectability via its yes. endurance over time as a human institution. But 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 the, the but the things that the reception of both the Bartian and the Maritime turns, yes, okay, uh, in Eastern Central Eastern Europe was probably, I think, under the conditions of the Cold War, somewhat restricted, right? Um, and in particular, as churches in, um, in the Protestant tradition were kind of guarding a sense of national belonging in the light of a foreign occupation by the Red Army, um, the, the kind of critique of your relationship with with um, uh, 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 with your previous um, modes of political thought and, and expression may not have taken place to the same extent. That's interesting because I would have imagined it could have gone the other way, that mm. people could have seen this sort of... Uh, protecting Christian identity mm. as against overly confusing mm. it with national identity as actually a, a productive way of thinking mm. about invasion by the USSR and mm. that kind mm. of thing. Mm. But instead what you're saying is they took it the other way and they were like, no, we are Hungarian, for example, uh, as over against the Russians who, are, who have conquered us and we want to preserve our Hungarian identity. I, th- I think, I think yeah. uh, I, I, it's not something I've explored in depth, I hasten yeah. to add, but that, yeah. that is my instinct about why you have this continuity. It is notable that um, uh, some of Orban's speeches used really, used really quite sophisticated theological language um, yeah. That normally passes journalists by, and and it's not that he's dropping it in there to appeal to a large and powerful audience segment, which he sometimes does with other things. You yeah. just wouldn't notice it unless you've, you you're tuned in in in, in the right if you're way. You're theologically trained, you know that he's yeah. using this language, and he actually knows what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. So it seems to me that what we're talking about is 
what if we're not a fan of Orban, and we may talk a little bit later about some of the defences of Orban, but if we're not a fan of this uh, way of being Christian, what we would call it is a sort of confusion between Christian identity and national identity. Yeah. That basically because we are historically Hungarian, that means we're historically Christian. Those two things are sort of... And that's particularly yeah. pronounced in the, in the Reformed tradition. So uh, Kotlin Novak, who like uh, Orban, is heavily influenced by Zoltan Balog. Um, yeah. And Kotlin Novak is now the Hungarian president, gave a, an address to the reform, Hungarian Reformed Convention in Debrecen about three years ago, where she said, the faith is blood. Oh, um, that's uh, very, ooh. Uh, uh, and that the preservation of Reformed Christianity in the Carpathian Basin, including outside of, of Hungary, in the ethnic Hungarian communities, was, was a, a matter of preserving, the, blood, uh, preserving the, um, the birth rate and the bloodlines. I mean, to me, that's really fascinating if you take it in light of some of the things like Apostle Paul says in Galatians, you know, in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek. You know, in other words, nationality is subordinate to your new Christian identity, which is almost an alternative to your national identity, but they don't really see it that way. No, and um, I think there's a particular thing that nurtures this in the Hungarian context, which is that, uh, well, firstly, that even though the Reformed Church in Hungary stroke the Hungarian Reformed Church in the Carpathian Basin is part of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, yeah. um, the governance structures of the Reformed world or the international government stru- governance structures of the Reformed world are much weaker than, than say, in the Catholic system. Yeah. Uh, um, but also that in the Hungarian context, while the Lutheran and the Reformed Churches, sorry, the Lutheran and the Catholic Churches both had their tendency towards extreme nationalism diluted at least to some extent right. um, by, the, uh, by the fact they had large Slovak and German-speaking elements within historic Hungary. Yeah. Um, the Reformed Church was almost completely reformed. It was 98.4% reformed. You mean... You mean Sorry, 98.4% uh, Hungarian. Hungarian, oh, I see. So they had so. A, a couple of sort of ethnic German congregations in um, Debrecen and Budapest, but um, uh, they were so overwhelmingly homogenous that they came to re- refer to themselves as Foyi Magyar, a pure Hungarian. Oh, wow, okay. And Karl Barth, when he visited the Hungarian Reformed Church, in, in the 1930s was quite horrified because he said it was almost unrecognisable as a confessional reformed church. It was an <laughs> ethnic church. Wow, that's some strong words. So what what does Viktor Orban mean? So when he talks about being Christian and Hungary being a Christian nation, what sorts of values is he talking about? What does he understand being devout being devout Christian to mean? Mm. Um, uh, he's, he's always um, careful uh, to say that it's not just about being a devout Christian, but recognizing Christianity as the basis for your value system and and civilization um Mm -hmm. so it sort of goes there's a penumbra a wide penumbra beyond the church going uh christian population to whom that language appeals right okay um and peter Krekko, um himself quite secular of the think tank political capital and and one of the most acute observers of hungarian politics and public life says that fidesz's policy platform really rests on a trinity of interlocking concepts um uh, um faith family and nation faith family and nation. nation so faith is supporting uh the role of the churches in public life and as providers of education and social services mm. um uh, family is is uh, promoting family life and and making it 
less financially disabling to have children, um, which is so what, subsidies for parents yeah. with children, that um, kind of thing. Then, um, and and then the third one is nation, which is 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 about the unity of the Hungarian nation beyond the borders. Um, you know, the Hungarian oh, okay. ethnic communities in the neighbouring countries. And uh, now, and, and a curious thing is that um, and the family policy has come in for a lot of attack in in Western media for reinforcing gender stereotypes, etc. But if you look at the Hungarian opposition in their last election campaign, they didn't want to, to, to mess with the family policy because it's so popular. They wanted to refine it and expand it, but not to abolish it. Yeah. I mean, it's also hard to deny that Christianity does have a lot of positive things to say about family and always been very supportive of family and of child raising. So it's, it's not as if we can say there that Viktor Orban and his party have completely missed elements of what it means to be Christian. No. And, you know, perhaps they've um, they've made a different uh, selection from the menu of, of, of options uh, about what, what you know, political Christianity can be. Um, of course, that doesn't excuse so many other things that um, in Hungarian public life which are deeply troubling, including the destruction of, of, of judicial independence, the squeeze on press freedom and the harassment of, of civil society organisations. So we could to talk about those three things briefly because our audience might not be familiar with them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there has been a, a gutting of the independence of the constitutional court. There were mass dismissals of, 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 of judges in the early part of okay. uh, uh, the, the last decade. As in people in the judicial system who didn't support Fidesz's yeah. I mean, own agenda. It was done on the basis of reducing yeah. the retirement age to 62. Um, but it, that oh, in creates, other words, there was a way of getting rid of the, all of the all older people, people who um, thought differently. Exactly. Gosh. Um, uh, so there was a sort of mass, mass uh, sort of purging of the judiciary by that means. There is significant economic pressure applied to non-government media in Hungary. So there is there is still a a small Fidesz critical media, but it's quite difficult to access outside of Budapest and one or two other large towns. Yeah. Uh, and and similarly, you know, that there's been this terrible pressure on independent civil society organisations monitoring human rights, and and they are subjected to tax authority raids and a, a kind of public vilification campaign. Right. So, if we're talking about the squeezing of the media for a second, does that potentially put your own journalism at risk? Oh no! Um, uh, they 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 basically leave foreign journalists alone. Well, oh, I say I'm see. a foreign journalist. I'm a Hungarian dual national, but you know, uh, for, for practical purposes. But you purposes, write you write for the English speaking audience. I write for the English speaking audience. Yeah. audience. Um, and in fact, they don't harass uh, Hungarian journalists directly. Usually, um, okay. it, it's about closing down their publications. Like you know, uh, and so what typically happens is that the advertisers are intimidated out of advertising or oh. the, the distribution channels are blocked by, by various means or the publication is bought by Fidesz-friendly oligarchs and then yeah. transformed. Um, and that sort of happens. I've known journalists who've had to jump from one publication to another until they've run out of publications to jump to. Oh, I see. So if, if they're at all critical of the Hungarian government, they, they find themselves quickly move from one job to another. Well, they you know, kind just, of have to because the, yeah. it no longer becomes possible ethically to work for the publication that they they have been with. Oh, I uh, see. Um, yeah. uh, 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 and, uh, you know, Modjo Hong, which is the second largest weekly in Hungary and is conservative but Orban critical, um, uh, has to be printed in Slovakia and, and trucked in for distribution because printers in Hungary are too scared to take the production order. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's a slightly 
scary tactic that would make us wary of any government that was trying to block press that was a, that was openly uh, opposed to some of its agenda. There are complex ways in which people's confessional identity or inherited confessional identity in Hungary shapes that outlook yeah. in a way in ways they're often not aware of. You know, shapes their cognitive structure. That 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 outlook. And so you're talking about the difference between uh, Catholics and Reformed, in, especially, in Hungary here. yeah, um, but also other communities. So yes, as I say, there's a common cultural late wavelength between Orban and the other Fidesz uh, leaders who mainly come from um, historically Calvinist families in either around Debrecen or mm. in northwest Transdanubia, in, in places where the Reformed are historically present, if not as a majority, then certainly in much larger concentrations than, mm. than in the Hungarian population as a whole. And certain themes in, in Fidesz discourse do very strongly connect with distinctly Hungarian Reformed themes, particularly that line in the constitution enacted in, in 2011, the Easter constitution, which talks about the importance of Christianity in preserving nationhood. Ah, uh, yes. Which is a very Hungarian reformed theme. We forget, it's very easy to forget now that before the Habsburg re-Catholicization of Hungary in the 18th century, Hungary from the Reformation until the late 17th, early 18th century was majority Protestant. Uh, okay, I didn't know that. Actually, no, well, yeah. uh, indeed, well, many Hungarians don't, because it's. Uh, and there is, uh, you know, part of the reformed self conception is we held. Uh, and preserved Hungarian Christian national identity in, under the under the Turkish occupation. I mean, the the whole idea, to me, the whole idea that the Christian faith can be useful in preserving national identity, I find that really quite scary language because because well, <laughs> to my mind, whenever you start using faith for some other worldly end, then you've misunderstood what faith is really all about, which is meant to be the source mm. of all of your values and the end of everything. It, you know, the nation should be serving yeah. Christian identity, not the other way around. Yeah. If, if you're serious about, you know, your Christianity as the, or following Jesus as sort of the ultimate commitment, your ultimate allegiance mm. to Jesus, not to any particular political or national party. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this this uh, accent is is stronger in the reform tradition in Hungary, but it is also there in the mix of the Catholic tradition, unfortunately. Yes. And um, so the word that caused such controversy in Orban's Tushvanyosh speech, foy. So what does that word mean? Uh, mm. Well, it means species or race. Okay. Uh, um, and so what did he say with that word? In? Uh. Well, he 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 said that you know, we do not wish to become a, a mixed race, a vedyash foy. And, okay, and, and, and that, that, that was referring to immigrants. Yes, yeah. for non-European immigrants. Non-European immigrants. It was okay, okay for Europeans to mix amongst each other, but not with non-Europeans. Okay, uh, um, and that's pretty stark racism. It's there. pretty stark racism. Yeah. And one should remember also in 2018, was it 2019, he said, you know, we do not wish to change our colour. In, a, in, a, in another Oof. speech that, that yeah, okay. um, did not get widely um, reported. There was a sort of certain irony in that, in that he has sort of become rather more orange-looking himself, I think, as a result of the sun lamp uh, in recent <laughs> years. Uh, but um, <laughs> you know, that has really toxic resonances going back to the interwar period, yeah. where, for instance, Bishop Prohaska, uh, uh, sitting in the, the um, upper chamber of the Hungarian parliament in 1920, moved mm. an amendment 
to the higher education law um, so as to adopt a numerous clauses, a closed number approach to the admission of Jewish students to universities. Oh. Um, uh, uh, because he said that Jewish immigration risked the de-Christianization of Hungary. Um, okay. And um, that this was a matter of foi on vedalem, racial self-defense. Racial self-defense, I see. And and that was under the guise of wanting to remain a Christian nation, yeah. whatever the word Christian nation really means. Exactly. But yeah. Can we talk for a moment about some of the defences of Orban that we've seen mm. among some popular Western figures? Mm. Like, for example, uh, Rod Dreher, I know, has defended Viktor Orban. And he's he's a relatively well-known Christian writer and yeah. speaker. What's, some of, what's the basis of some of his defence? Uh, well, if I was very cynical, I would say that he is in receipt of a nice stipend from the Danube Institute. The What's the Danube Institute? The Danube Institute is a Fidesz front think tank in, okay. in, in Budapest, funded by the Hungarian government. Um, uh, but I mean, if the theme of this episode is that sometimes people are motivated religiously before they're motivated yes, financially. I think, I, I think before before that, I think he somewhat naively, though understandably, saw Hungary as a Benedict option country, to, to quote one of his own books. Yeah, uh, so Rodre is the author of a book called The Benedict Option, which argues that essentially that Christians should withdraw from political yeah. life and just preserve their own yes, Christian exactly. identity. Circle the yeah. wagons, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so basically he sees Hungary as a good example of that. On, yeah. a nas- on a national level, a sort of um, you know circled wagon arrangement in the middle of secular Europe. Yeah, um, okay. Uh, I think the thing that I found very disturbing in his recent defence of Orban in the context of the Tushmanuel speech was his saying, well, Orban was really only using race as a cipher, a shorthand for religion and culture, um, which yeah. uh, it, indeed it has been so used in Hungarian history in the past, in the interwar period, and led to things like, you know, Prohashka's foi on Vedelem. The Jewish... The, yeah, yes, okay. the Jewish laws. Of, well, in some ways, that's part of the problem, is this confusion between race and religion, yeah. um, which... Yeah, it's very, very tricky if you're a Christian and believe that all races are equally sort of um, have an equal claim to yeah. Christianity because Christianity transcends race. Exactly. Yeah. And, and But the idea that it has an equal claim to or they have equal claims um, is, is not um, entirely natural to at least the Hungarian reformed tradition, which in the 1930s had very serious internal conversations about creating a separate subordinate church structure in which to segregate Jewish converts. Jewish converts to, to Christianity. Christianity on the model, I think, of the um, uh, separate uh, daughter churches for blacks and mixed race people um, uh, of the sister Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. Okay, so even if Jews became Christians, mm. so as in changing their religious identity, their racial identity was still the primary yeah. indicator of the fact that they were second-class citizens. Yeah, um, and yeah. they ultimately held back from from creating this separate church structure, but the fact that the conversations went as far as they did is pretty alarming. Yeah, yeah, okay. Is there anything else that Rod Dreher tr- tries to draw on to defend Viktor Orban? Um, I think one of the saddest ironies is that in some of his articles there's a, an implication that Christianity informed and sort of strengthened Orban's dissident stance in the late 1980s. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's a, a misapprehension because Orban didn't move to embrace uh, Christianity until the 1990s. Right. But, but the really sad thing about that is that 
he he ignores the rather conveniently the the persecution that the Orban government has waged on um, Gabor Ivanis. Uh, uh, Who's that? The, the pastor who married Orban in 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 ninety two oh, okay. first church marriage. Uh, Gabor Ivanis um, uh, Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship. Um, which was uh, very actively persecuted by the Hungarian state in the 1970s and 80s and is right. now experiencing the same sort of um, uh, pressure again. Yeah. I mean, my own feeling of some of what, where Rod Dreher is coming from is that he sees the rest of the West, you know, Europe and America and Canada, as departing from Christianity in radical ways, as abandoning Christian values. And... In this sense of sort of alarming threat mm. that he sees from secularism, he sees Hungary as a shining example of something mm. that is refusing yes. to abandon these traditional Christian values. Mm. And because of that, that makes it attractive to him. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's certainly how, 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 how it started out. But I bear in mind that he's now spent more time in Hungary and, and seen more things. I'm, yeah. I'm surprised that he feels able to continue articulating the, that view with perhaps the confidence that he does. Yeah, okay. Can we talk a little bit about the immigration policy? Mm. What, what are the details of that and what is it that makes that disturbing to some people? Yes, so the big problem in 2015 was not necessarily construction of the border fence and insistence of people using regular crossing points. It was the yeah. incredibly sort of uh, souped up xenophobic nature of the uh, government communication, a kind of real in, instilling of, 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 of yeah. hate towards migrants as an existential threat to European civilization. And the government um, was actively involved in that oh, kind very of much so, yeah. completely. And, and then the, uh, making it impossible to apply for asylum well, that's a, that's against the UN Refugee Convention. Well, exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. So you know, you have to um, apply at a consulate abroad, um, and, oh. uh, 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 and then also the conditions that people were kept in. Uh, I see, and, and and the unlawful detention of of of, my, of minors in immigration facilities and that that sort of thing. So it was it was those those kind of elements. There there are, there are paradoxes here, because although Orban has spoken in a very strong manner against mass immigration and in particular in that speech at Tushvanyosh uh, uh, in in Romania last month uh, where he says you know we do not wish to become a, a mixed race people yeah I mean that's very strong language very we don't strong we language. don't want mixed race we just want our own race yes. here yeah um paradoxically um Hungary has seen record uh, immigration under Orban, particularly from the Far East. Oh, really? So in 2017-18, the Hungarian government added the equivalent of 1.5% uh, to the population in one year. That's um, actually a lot. It's an awful yeah. lot, um, um, mainly from, from China and Vietnam. Okay. Um, I'd say the Vietnamese restaurant scene in Budapest is booming and is quite wonderful, and uh, I'd okay. encourage people to check it out. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, there is often a slight disconnect between rhetoric and reality. But I mean, in, in some ways that speaks positively towards them. If they are actually letting these immigrants in, oh. their actions are better than their words about immigration in that um, case. They might be yeah. better about immigration, but not about asylum. Um, right. So uh, they're, letting, they're letting immigrants in, but not refugees. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, and uh, I think there is a perception that the non-Christian people who are coming from China and Vietnam... Um, 
uh, deprioritized. Well, they they, um, and the government doesn't really talk about them, um, but I I suspect there is a sort of calculus that they regard them as less potentially disruptive, perhaps uh, than 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 migrants from the Middle East and Africa. I I think that is their perception, Um, and and they and, and these communities do tend to live quite sort of separately with, within Hungarian society, um, apart from the, the sort of commercial uh, side of their of their interaction. Okay. So what, what would you say uh, we learn from this as Christians ourselves? What we see is somebody who, who seems to be a devout Christian who's practising his Christianity in a way that many of us are not that happy with. It seems that he's just being a bit selective about which elements of Christian values he chooses to prioritise and which he chooses to ignore. But what, what does that say about us? Are we sometimes...? Oh, I think we can all be terribly selective and we can also all use faith... Um, as uh, a vehicle for self-deception about our own behaviour. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and so... Well, we can let faith serve our political interests rather than the other way around. Our political or our personal yeah. interests. And, yeah. um, uh, so on, on the selectivity issue, a typical thing that is said of, of public Christianity in the Anglo-American sphere is that it's very good at talking about poverty and asylum, not so good about abortion or divorce. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, though actually those, those are topics that Orban has also steered clear somewhat um in in the okay. context but but he you know he chooses other things from the conservative men- outside of the christian menu including family yeah so what, what what we're saying is that there's there's a number of different christian yeah. values and principles some of them align more closely with those on the right some of them align more closely with those on the left and it's just very easy for us to be led by our political orientation to just prioritize the christian values that align with our political values yeah um, yeah. So that that is part of it, but also we can all use a our personal uh, sense of faith direction to hide things from ourselves. Uh, yeah, yeah. And sometimes vocation can be used as justification for very selfish behaviour. Yeah. In other words, I'm called to be a really powerful political figure, so therefore I have to do whatever it takes to become powerful for, and to stay powerful, even uh, even if that means things that are not particularly nice or Christian. Yes, yeah. like suppressing. Um, dissident, you know, distant press opinion. Um, And if we think about just a more common everyday example, priests who embezzle or abuse children may still have a very powerful personal sense of vocation, maybe justifying them their behaviour to it's themselves in elaborate, in elaborate ways. That's a challenging example. It's a challenging yeah. example, yeah. But, but one has to be realistic. And In other words, it's always a mix. We, we, we like to create these um, sort of enemy these foils who are pure evil and just using religion as a, as a guise for their evil acts. But actually what they're doing is not so dissimilar from what we often do as well. Yeah, it's on just, a spectrum with it. Yeah. Uh, um, and in a, in, a, in a kind of different but related vein, John Mace Roberts's book, his biography of, of uh, Josef Tiso, who was the Catholic priest who was the president of the Nazi puppet state of Slovakia oh, gosh. In, 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 in the 1940s is very good on this because um, he doesn't just present Tiso as a monster. He shows the elaborate Selves. 
avenues yeah, of self-deception that he's so used to justify his behaviour to himself. Um, yeah. and, and that's on a spectrum with things that we all do, alas. And the trouble with self-deception is it's easy to see it in other people, but the whole point about self-deception is that we can't so easily see it in ourselves. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you with us on the podcast, and thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been yeah. greatly stimulating to chat with you. And do do look out for um, Alex's uh, Church Times articles, which expound some of this and show some of the data behind some of this depiction of Hungary quite well. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye.